In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. And I'm Colm O'Mongoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and in Dublin. This week, as the world fixates on Arizona, Pennsylvania and Georgia, Brexit has been quietly creeping towards the end game. Here at Brexit Republic, we've managed to bring the two stories together, so we'll be hearing from Donald Trump's Northern Ireland envoy, who had a remarkably candid chat this week on Brexit, on his future, on Trump's future, and the strange tale of Simon Coveney, and whether the EU would stop British planes from flying. But as voters went to the polls in the US, or indeed mailed their ballots, things were not going so well in Brexit land. Both sides had been intensifying negotiations, with a week of talk in London and there were signs of progress. But then when negotiators arrived back in Brussels last week the mood changed. We'll discuss what went wrong and whether or not there is a fatal gap with just a week to ten days remaining. So Tony for the week for the episode that's in it Mick Mulvaney President Trump's special envoy on Northern Ireland speaking at the Institute of International and European Affairs by Zoom call this week What did he have to say? Anything eyebrow-raising on the week that's in it? Anything appropriately eyebrow-raising, should I say? I think everything was eyebrow-raising. He was certainly value for money and it was a great coup for the Institute of International and European Affairs in Dublin to to get him to speak. So he came via a Zoom call from somewhere in the United States, although it looked like there were palm trees waving in the breeze reflected on the window that he was sitting beside. So it, it could have been somewhere perhaps Florida-esque. He was asked about the election, about Joe Biden, about Donald Trump and his future. And he was remarkably candid about Trump and also about the impact this might have on Brexit on a UK US free trade agreement. I mean, by and large, he said that the administration of Joe Biden, if that were, of course, uh, confirmed, would probably not be that much different from Donald Trump's attitude to Northern Ireland and, and Brexit. Joe Biden would probably also appoint a Northern Ireland envoy. But in terms of Donald Trump's future. He said that Trump would probably run again in 2024. And in a very eyebrow raising way, he said that he could even run in 2028. He described described Donald Trump as a high energy 74 year old and, you know, largely dismissed any talk of Donald Trump being engaged in any sort of nefarious democracy undermining course of action in the US with you know his his tweets and his claims that he had won the election and that there was widespread voter fraud and so on. Uh, he just said, look, this is 
absolutely par for the course in American elections. Both sides get lawyered up. Both sides contest elections. Both sides get their legal teams in. He said he was asked by a European outlet if this was a coup. He said this is an outrageous question. This was nothing of the sort. This was simply Donald Trump trying to protect his position and his legal teams uh, were, were pretty much doing the same thing. So it was, you know, it was a highly entertaining 45 minutes and he spoke about his first trip to Ireland and the whole question as well of the internal market bill because that is he across it is he up to speed on it he took office is he is he, is he up to speed he is on indeed it? I mean oh, yeah. He, yeah he is I mean he's he's th- that sort of dominated his first visit to Ireland north and south when he was appointed in September and his view was that this could cause a hard border by accident on the island of Ireland. And that was that was his main concern. So not a fan uh, then? I mean, he well, there's a, an important distinction between his understanding of the internal market bill and uh, Ireland's understanding and the EU's understanding. I mean, he was kind of saying if the internal market bill stayed in place and it helped to cause a hard border then that would be something the administration would be seriously concerned about. But he seemed to suggest that it wasn't a given that the internal market bill would cause a hard border. But of course, the Irish government's view and the EU's view is that the internal market bill per se breaches the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is there to avoid, to to make sure there's no hard border. So he's more interested in the effect rather than the principle of international law being broken by the internal markets bill. Okay. Exactly. Uh, So he sought an Irish view on this or an Irish view of it was given to him from none other than Simon Coveney, the Minister for Foreign Affairs and Defence here. Yeah, I mean, this this was an extraordinary tale that he told. He said that, you know, he met a lot of people when he came on his visit and obviously spoke to people in Washington about this as well. Richie Neal, who's a, an influential Irish-American politician, also people on the British side. But he said, you know, the most interesting conversation he had was with Simon Coveney. And he said, look, Simon, here's the Here's what I worry about. The, the the internal market bill is there. There's a no-deal Brexit. The internal market bill kicks in. Suddenly, uh, there's a hard border on the island of Ireland, or there's the, the problem of, you know, how do you deal with the island of Ireland? He said the Brits say they don't want to put up a border. The Irish say they won't want to put up a border because both, both they and the British know what, what uh, that means. But then the Europeans come along and say, well, we need something to protect goods that are going to be flowing into the single market. So maybe we'll have to put up a, a hard border. And he said Simon Coveney's response to that was, well, the EU has much better and bigger levers to pull than that. They could effectively take look at commercial aviation as a way to get back at the Brits if there's a hard border as a result of the internal market bill. And he was asked to explain this a bit later. And he said, well, this could be connected to EU state aid rules and aviation. But for example, if the Europeans were very, very upset, then British Airways wants to fly from London into the into the EU and if the if the Europeans are so upset they could make that make life very difficult for a company like British Airways so a lot of people were somewhat scratching their heads over this and uh, eventually the Department of Foreign Affairs had to issue a statement so what appears to have happened is that Simon Coveney did indeed meet Mick Mulvaney uh, at a breakfast in Dublin at the end of September This was a breakfast lasting about 90 minutes, and I'm told that 
during the conversation, Simon Coveney described all of the interdependencies that both the EU and the UK would still have with each other, even after Brexit and even in the event of a no-deal Brexit. Right, uh, rather, than a, like rather than a rush or an egg breakfast, cooperation it was a Rashomon breakfast because everybody seems to have a different memory of it. Well, exactly. Yes, exactly. And, and the, certainly the, the Irish memory of this was that the only context in which Simon Coveney raised the question of aviation was that, you know, that was an area where both sides would still have to talk to each other and have a, you know, have, have some kind of relationship or, and arrangement in place so that planes could keep flying. And uh, I was certainly told that there, in no circumstances did Simon Coveney say that aviation could be used as a threat against the UK if they did persist in having the internal market bill in place. And, and that in turn uh, led to a... Uh, a hard border, but again, it was a I suppose a case of of somebody speaking out of turn following a, a private breakfast meeting, and the Department of Foreign Affairs feeling somewhat uncomfortable about this, especially given that you know Mick, Mick Mulvaney is, is is going to be leaving the outgoing administration, outgoing uh, as uh, things look at the moment at uh, six o'clock on right or five five thirty on a on a Friday evening. They may not be sorry to see him go. They may not. I don't think they'll be issuing a, a blunt statement on that particular issue. Okay, well, let's get to the issue of the Brexit negotiations, uh, Tony, because things had gone quiet. There was a, a sort of a, a submarine situation. Things were going on under the surface, but the periscopes came above the surface during the week on Twitter with both David Frost and Michel Barnier respectively saying that there were wide divergences, according to the UK tweet, and serious divergences in the case of the EU tweet. Things had been going, I wouldn't say so well, but there was talk of progress and legal text, etc., etc. And then there was a bit of a, a change in the mood music. Yeah, so I think last week we we didn't even discuss the state of play in the talks because they had sort of gone into the semi-tunnel or semi-submarine situation. So we talked about um, whiskey and milk last week. We talked about whiskey, yeah, really interesting stuff. But clearly things had picked up after the big row over the EU summit and that statement from EU leaders and uh, Michel Barnier had had to sort of court the UK with certain language that they wanted to hear on intensification, on sovereignty, on on who had to make concessions and so on. And things got back up and running and then we had a a very intensive week or so in London. The EU side went over and then they came back to Brussels on the 28th of October and then 100-odd negotiators came back from the UK side uh, to Brussels to to pick up the negotiations there. And at that point, uh, I'm told that things started to go somewhat pear-shaped. Now, you're right. It looks like both sides did get down to joint legal drafting, clearing the weeds, a lot of very intensive, very hard, excruciating drafting work, which has been very difficult, you know, starting off with perhaps the EU text to begin with. If that doesn't work, you then move to the UK text. The EU then gives its comments on the UK draft and then the UK takes account of EU comments. I mean, it's really laborious, dull uh, stuff. But that seemed to cover a lot of the non-contentious areas. But then when, when both sides were getting to the contentious stuff like fisheries and the level playing field and governance, then 
they, they weren't really getting anywhere. But then when they came back to Brussels and things resumed, they were meeting fairly early in the morning. Both sides would have their own kind of huddles amongst themselves. Then things would kick off at nine o'clock. They'd work all the way through to 6 p.m. Both sides would then debrief their own side and then individual negotiators and officials would have to prepare for the next day. So it was a very exhausting process. But the mood definitely seemed to change. And on the EU side, it looked like the UK was stalling. It was just not budging at all on the level playing field or fisheries or governance and indeed seemed to retreat from what the EU felt were you know, commitments or signals that they were going to, 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 to move towards the EU side. They began to ask like awkward aid. questions that gave the impression that things had slipped back somewhat or that they weren't engaged with the principle of what had already been agreed. Yes, yeah, so let's take again the, the level playing field state aid, which we've talked about a lot on the podcast. What Michel Barnier had proposed was a toolbox with four elements, so both sides would sign up to high-level principles on on not undercutting the other through state subsidies. The UK would agree to an independent competition authority that would robustly implement the, the high principles, would keep a line of communication open with the European Commission and, you know, to take, you know, be, be act as a, as a potential constraint on a future UK government from spending money in a way to prop up a, an industry or a company that just was unfair, you know, that, that breached uh, the fair competition principle. Then there would be a dispute resolution mechanism. And finally, there would be a, a kind of an automatic retaliation clause, which both sides could use if they felt that arbitration was just going to take too long. If there was a particularly nefarious breach of the state aid rules, then they could, uh, you know, somebody could have retaliation in, in some sector or another. It wouldn't simply just be uh, trade measures like tariffs and so on. Right. So um, what was the perceived problem with that on, on the UK's well, part? Because they, there are, uh, the they, issue of a competition authority has come up in the internal markets bill. So it's not like it's wildly divergent from their thinking. So what's the, pro- what's the problem with Barnier's toolbox in particular on the UK side, do we know? I think in general, the problem has been that the UK just doesn't want to have a constraint on domestic powers to spend money where, where they want, if, if they feel that a particular industry or a particular company or a particular sector is deserving of a sudden injection of cash, then that should be their business. They, they don't want to be constrained by, by any treaty with the EU. And that seems to be the general sticking point. But I think what happened in these negotiations was that the UK side started to ask more and more questions in a way that gave the EU side the sort of suspicion that they were kind of rowing back from what the EU thought was a was a clear signal that they would work and, and engage in the EU's idea. And the signal, of course, went back to David Frost's appearance in the House of Lords EU committee at the beginning of October, where he spoke very significantly of an arrangement on state aid that went over above and beyond what you get in a standard free trade agreement. So that was seen as a clear signal that the EU, that the UK was now prepared to shift a bit on on the state aid issue. Right. Why would it Um, be backsliding at the moment? And it has given rise to suspicions on the EU side that there's an element of winding down the clock to ramp up the pressure so that trade-offs will have to be made in a heated atmosphere before the end of the year. Is is that the EU suspicion they're beginning to suspect bad faith here? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that was certainly the the view that, that was crystallising around Michel Barnier's 
briefing of of member states on Wednesday. Now, of course, the, as as we've discussed, there has been a bit of a media blackout. Both sides have worked very hard not to to leak progress or or details from the negotiations that that were now intensifying. Um, and Michel Barnier had resisted his regular briefings of both member states through through co repair. That's the the body that brings EU ambassadors together, and also the European Parliament's Brexit steering committee. But clearly, because things had suddenly turned quite cool when they came back to Brussels. Michel Barnier felt that he, he needed to tell capitals what was happening. Initially, this day last week, he had thought that there would be a co-repair meeting, but they decided to hold off and see if things had changed. Uh, they worked all through the weekend, but then by Monday or Tuesday of this week, I think the feeling was that Michel Barnier really had to tell capitals what was going on. So he briefed EU ambassadors on Wednesday afternoon. Right. Yeah. Do we, do we know what he said? Uh, I was just going to ask you. Yeah. I mean, he, he basically said that he could not see a trajectory towards a deal at this stage. He, he was very downbeat and he said that the UK were acting as if they had all the time in the world to, to negotiate, whereas they knew full well that the EU has a much tighter deadline because of the, the European Parliament, the fact that the European Parliament needs a month to process the treaty, run it through a number of parliamentary committees before it goes to the plenary on the 14th of December. And the the suspicion, certainly on the EU side, is that the UK are deliberately now trying to slow things down, keep all of the various files open, and then have a mad dash with a kind of a a grand bargain hothouse negotiation at the end with Boris Johnson and uh, Ursula von der Leyen and Charles Michel all kind of huddled over tables of fish stocks and uh, and what have you. Now, certainly the UK view of that is they contest that completely, saying, look, we were the ones back in July who were trying to speed things up. We were the ones who were trying to intensify the negotiations. We were the ones who, who wanted a, a deal done by the middle of October, remember the European summit. So it's a little bit rich for the EU to complain now that the UK is trying to slow things down and, and run down the clock. But certainly, genuinely, there was a very, very dark mood this week after that briefing, both of EU ambassadors and the European Parliament. That, that there was sim- simply during the period when it was supposed that you would start to get movement on these three tricky issues, and instead there was no movement at all. And we've only got a week to 10 days left because that then runs up against the EU's overall deadline of mid-November. The and there's considerable again, disquiet about this in, in the European Parliament. The chair of the European Parliament's UK coordination group, that's uh, David McAllister, who he's a German MEP from the EPP group in the European Parliament, but his father is Scottish hence the name. He was speaking at an event organising the Lower Saxony state representation and he was joined by the chair of the European Parliament's Trade Committee. Both of them said, McAllister said he was cautiously optimistic, but there was time pressure. But Bernd Lange, his European Parliament colleague, said, I am on the verge of losing my patience and rejecting the project because it can really no longer comply with democratic principles. So there is real concern growing about how long this is taking or how close it's pushing towards the end of the year and the lack of time that's left for the kind of scrutiny and scrubbing you're talking about. Mm, there is. I mean, we're also getting into issues of prestige and the sort of institutional pride uh, being at stake because, I mean, yeah, the cl- Parliament doesn't the want European to be an afterthought. Hasn't, yeah, I mean, the, the, the European Parliament has not been in the driving seat in these negotiations, and, and that has been a source of some 
irritation, if you like, over the past three three to four years. It's, it's the member states who are really giving the mandate to Michel Barnier, and he's coming from the European Commission side of things. The parliament has been kept in touch, and of course the parliament has to ratify the treaty. You see, the problem is that if the negotiations do drift on, then it just becomes impossible for the timeline to, to, to hold up because you need a month for European Parliament committees like the Industry Committee, like the Justice Committee, the Trade Committee, they, they all have to take a look at this treaty. And if they can't do that within you know, a reasonable period of time to, to assess it, and again, people say, look, this is the most important treaty that the EU will sign in decades, and they can't be expected to rush it. So then if you do start to encroach upon that time and the, and, the, and the parliament says, look, we can't ratify this at this point, then you get into this very, very messy situation where legally at the end of December, the UK falls out of the legal order of the European Union. So then what do you, do you start to provisionally apply aspects of the treaty, those aspects that are EU competence only. How does that then impact? Sounds like the European unions will be calling in its uh, respective teams of lawyers in the same kind of numbers that we're seeing in the US at the moment. Yeah, I mean, you you get into a really kind of hazardous situation. And then the other problem is that in terms of sensitivities, that that would be a real slap in the face for the European Parliament. I mean, their one chance to to show that they are the EU's democratic front line, they ratify a treaty on behalf of citizens, that gets taken away from them or, or they're told, well, you'll have to ratify it sometime in 2021 then that, that's not a great look. And then you have tensions between the, the Parliament and the, the Commission and the European Council. So that's a scenario that all sides want to avoid, and certainly on the EU side. Right. But then the other problem is that if you leave it too long, then time itself starts to become a very corrosive factor in the negotiations. How do you mean? If both sides think that they can gain an advantage by running down the clock, then the clock gets run down and time right. runs out. And then people start to panic the markets start to react, you get acrimony creeping into the negotiations, and then you can't really, you know, at a certain point, the, the th- things kind of break down. The detail needed and the, and the legal complexity required to write a treaty like this are such that you can't sort of do it at 11 minutes to midnight and, right. you know, hope that everything will be fine the next day. There have been two stories over the last two, three weeks run by Bloomberg. One was a few weeks ago that there was something in the offing where the European Union was trying to come up with proposals where they would basically have to bite their lips and come up with something that looked like a win for Boris Johnson. And then there was further detail on what this might be in the area of fisheries. And again, somebody talking to Bloomberg is saying that there's something being cooked up in the background that is a face-saving exercise for the UK to be pulled out of the bag and that Boris Johnson can sign up to. Are you hearing anything on that? What do we know about that as a possible grounds for compromise? Mm. Yeah, so at the weekend, I think on Sunday, Bloomberg ran a story quoting two sources familiar with the negotiations who said that, that they were inching to closer to a deal on fisheries and that this had raised the optimism level for an overall deal by the middle of November. Now, there wasn't a huge amount of detail in the story, but it said that essentially the UK would be able to show that it could catch a whole lot more of fish stocks in its waters and that that would be a kind of concession there and that the access for European fleets would be reduced and that whatever way you dress it up, there was a clear win for the UK side. 
And for the EU side, the whole question of what stocks EU fleets could still catch would be deferred for a couple of years or sometime in the future and that you would then come back to the issue. Now, I I checked out the story on Monday of this week, the day after it appeared, and my sources were saying that this this was really not the case and that this, this would be completely out of character for Michel Barnier to concede on this because that, it would it would take away any leverage that the EU side had in working out what kind of quotas they get. You know, if you just say, right, we'll deal with that in the future, then once you've signed the treaty, then your leverage is gone. So from that point of view, the story was kind of discounted. And I'm told that Michel Barnier himself actually spoke about this story when he briefed EU ambassadors on Wednesday and he was particularly irritated at this. He didn't know where it had come from. This was absolutely not the case. But I think it is probably accurate to say that the the EU will lose quota compared to what they have at the moment and they will lose some access to British waters. The whole point is that both sides, if there is to be an agreement, both sides will need to show that they have more or less got something out of this. The UK won't get 100% of the stocks in their waters they won't be able to banish EU fleets 100% from, from their waters, but they will get a substantial increase in what they catch at the moment. The EU will suffer a drop in quota, but it might not be as bad as, as people think. And that then EU member states will try and do some burden sharing among themselves so that no one member state you know, takes all the pain of, of, the, of the quota loss. And, you know, the idea is that you get something that both sides can agree to, but they just haven't been able to take that step uh, yet. That's right. the problem. Michel Barnier has spoken about their 650 million euro worth of, of fish that, that European fleets catch in British waters. What if the EU said, OK, you, you can you can get 100 million of that back as a package of value that you can get showing that this is how much value we're getting out of Brexit in terms of the amount of fish we can catch. Probably not enough if that's the way they're going. But that shows you the potential direction of travel. But again, okay. it is, you know, there's, such, there's so much political pain there for both sides that neither side seem to be able to, to take that big step. Okay. I suppose at this point, somebody reviewing our, our podcast under the name of Ancient Mariner took exception to some fish puns on my part the other week. It was in no, in no way listener meant to denigrate the importance of fisheries or the fishing industry to coastal communities. It was just a tendency, I suppose, I have to uh, slip into punning when the opportunity arises. But before we wrap up for today's episode, Tony, I want to ask you about something, and I've had the benefit of reading a blog that's going to be published on the RTE website where you go into considerable detail about what's been going on in Brexit and the dynamics between the two sides. You're quoting a diplomat in your blog that says, Barnier was trying to be optimistic, but he was implying that if no progress was made, quote, a serious decision would have to be made. Like what? Like no deal, you know, like contingency planning, preparedness. It is extremely possible that this is all part of an elaborate negotiating strategy or theatre on the EU side. We saw quite a bit of theatre from the UK a few weeks ago. Maybe the EU is doing something similar with this briefing from Michel Barnier. I think it's fair to say that there is no movement on those big issues and time is extremely short and you can't turn these things around in a hot and heavy meeting between the the political leaders. This has to be done by lawyers. It's going to take time. And I think Michel Barnier is concerned that at a certain point, they're going to have to say, look, the UK is not taking us seriously when we say we need to have a level playing field. We need to have a, a, a legally robust regime on state aid. We need something on fisheries. You know, if we get to that point, 
then the EU side will will have to say, look, we're, this is just not going to happen and we're going to have to get into no-deal contingency planning, meaning that at the end of this year, the UK will fall out, they'll be trading on WTO terms, but you will need to have pragmatic side agreements on aviation and road haulage so that planes can keep flying and trucks can keep moving. OK, Tony, to look ahead to the coming days, as we always do at the end of every podcast, news reaches us late in this recording of a bit of high-level engagement. Yeah, I'd spoken to a number of sources this week who said that Boris Johnson was due to have a phone call with Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, but that because things had gone so badly in the negotiations in the past 10 days or so, that that phone call wouldn't happen and that it was effectively going to be delayed until next weekend or or late next week. But late this afternoon, the European Commission spokesman Eric Mamere tweeted that Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen would be having a phone call tomorrow, Saturday, on the state of play in the negotiations. No other details about the nature of the call, but I think that is quite an interesting development I mean, it signals that they like we are in the the end zone where there's going to have to be some high level political intervention, whether this is it or whether this is kind of a preamble to a more intense political intervention later next week remains to be seen. It is interesting, though, that, again, British officials had asked that Saturday be kept free, that negotiators weren't going to be meeting or talking. And again, there was some speculation on the EU side that you know there might be a, a cabinet meeting where Boris Johnson would really put the hard questions to his cabinet about how far they were prepared to back him to make some potentially painful compromises on fisheries, on, on the level playing field and so on. Now, at least we know that Saturday will be kept aside for a phone call between Ursula von der Leyen and Boris Johnson. I mean, there is, I think, a fairly persuasive theory out there that Boris Johnson is trying to delay taking a position until, uh, you know, the last minute. He's going to try and delay it as long as he possibly can because it's in his nature not to, to, to have to choose between two suboptimal positions and... Certainly on the level playing field and state aid, the EU are simply not going to move any further. I mean, this is such an article of faith for the European Union in how they interact with the UK in the coming decades. So if he is going to uh, you know, make a compromise on state aid and the level playing field, when does he do it? Does he do it when there's really no other option left open to him? Does he test the hardball principle to destruction, just keep holding out and then hopefully hoping at the last minute the EU does shift or does he look at you know the what what's on the tray in front of him and say well this is probably as good as it gets and you know I'm prepared to to make that compromise and I'll try and get it through the cabinet and suffer whatever political pain there is. I mean the view in Brussels is that Things are so bad in the UK with with COVID and even with a deal, the potential chaos and disruption at UK ports and for the UK economy is so bad that why would you 
needlessly go for no deal when there is a respectable deal, you know, right in front of you. And that's the call that Boris Johnson has to make. And what's the thinking and on I the EU side the of... Fun- the fun- yeah, what's, what, why Ursula von der Leyen and, and, and why now? It, do they feel that Barnier's engagement isn't being taken seriously? Do they feel the bottom line needs to be heard from Ursula von der Leyen to outline exactly how serious and how far the European Union is prepared to go in defence of the level playing field and all of the other things we've been hearing about over the last while to show that they are serious and no deal is very much on the table for the European Union as much as it is for the UK. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's it's been characteristic of this process that at key moments there is a, a higher level intervention. Now, ironically, it, it doesn't come from member states, uh, from EU leaders, because the way that a free trade agreement is negotiated, it, it is between the European Commission. The European Commission negotiates on behalf of member states. So Boris Johnson's interlocutor is not going to be, you know, Angela Merkel or or whoever. It's It's got to be, from an institutional point of view, it's got to be Ursula von der Leyen. So my, my guess is that she will be telling Boris Johnson, look, this is as far as we can go on the level playing field the EU feels it has it has moved because it's set out with the the principle of dynamic alignment, where both sides would would follow the same rules in tandem over time. The EU has dropped that request and gone for something different, but the UK is still not buying what the EU has offered as a compromise. And my guess is that Ursula von der Leyen will say to him, "Look, this is as far as we're going to go. You have to make that call. Are you prepared to jump with us on this, or?" are we going to see a no-deal situation? Right. Well, I suppose that is the important engagement. There's no point in going us into future rounds of negotiation. That phone call, a lot will come out of that. Maybe we'll pick up what happened after that phone call in the next episode. Yeah. Um, I mean, whatever happens, negotiators will be back in London on Sunday and they are supposed to be talking all week. What I'm told is that there is still so much work to be done. There are so many issues to be cleared and so much legal drafting to be done that it will not be ready by next Friday but it could be ready by early the following week if everybody works through the weekend and works the long hours that they have been working. So I think next week is going to be decisive and then we'll see the week after if this is finally the end of the line, no deal or deal, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens to the podcast even after that. All right, that's it for me, <laughs> Colm Omongai, RT's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. And me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.